Good morning. So, this morning, um, this morning we're going to see where we get to because um, there's a lot of things spinning in my head. And um, the title we're working with, our working title, let's see where we go, but our working title this morning is Power, Temples, and the Last Word. And we're going to talk this morning about power. It seems, um, seems like an apt thing to talk about um, in our current political situation. I'm not going to get too political. Um, but there's a lot of power struggles going on at the moment, aren't there? In, in both our major political parties. And what's really interesting for me is that the more extreme, far left or far right our parties get, the more they start to look like each other. So there's often complaints, weren't there? Kind of when they're kind of, kind of fighting over the center ground and going, oh, there's no difference really between them. And we've seen the left lurch over to the left with Momentum's influence. We've seen the right lurch over to the right with the um, ERG's influence. And, and actually, what's really sad is they look a lot, even in some ways, more like each other now than they did before. They passionately oppose each other. But their behavior is the same. There seems to be racism on it, both sides. Maybe to different groups of people, but it's the same behavior. There seems to be quite a lot of people behind the scenes controlling, trying to flood um, constituencies with people to vote their, constitu their, their, their version of their party in on both sides. There seems to be a lot of power and control and manipulation on both sides. I suppose it seems to be quite a lot of strong rhetoric and violence and harassment and bullying on both sides. And you might be sat there now going, well, I mean, there is on the other side, but not probably on the side that I like. But that's exactly the problem, isn't it? We don't actually see it ourselves. Because power, power is this distorting characteristic. It's this distorting choice. And what we see going on is this cycle of power. And we can track through history. And you have the people who are in power and the people who are oppressed or under someone else's power. Until there comes the revolution and they overthrow. The people rise up and they overthrow the people who are in power, the corrupt people who've been manipulating their power and using it to oppress people and kill people and, and damage people and whatever. And, they, and the new people, the oppressed, step up and they take power back. But actually in very short shrift, they become quite dominating and they become quite violent and they become quite oppressive. And the oppressed becomes the oppressor. The person under the dictator becomes the dictator. And we see this cycle of power. 
And it's not a modern phenomenon. We see it in Scripture too. So what I'm going to try and do now is turn to 1 Kings. And we're going to read a little bit. We're going to read a little bit of 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings we see this description of Solomon. Now, for those of you who know the Bible well, you'll know that Solomon is regarded as the probably the wisest king ever. And um, he was king of Israel, very wise in many sorts of ways. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, we see this visit from the Queen of Sheba, who's not just some mythological character. She actually existed. Here she is, being talked about in the Bible. The Queen of Sheba. When the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold and precious jewels. And when she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all her questions. Nothing was too hard for, for the king to explain to her when the Queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was. And when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of officials, and the splendid clothing, the cupbearers, the burnt offering Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day, listening to your wisdom. Oh, how blessed people are just to be in your presence. I mean, that's a compliment, right? Do people say that to you very often? I don't, I don't hear that very much. When someone comes to me and goes, oh my goodness, the people have to listen to you talking all the time are so blessed. Think about that. So... So Queen of Sheba is amazed by King Solomon and all his wisdom and all his all the wonders of what he has and she's amazed by him. But what's really interesting about this is actually what happens either side of this text. Because just before chapter 10 we see, we see this story in chapter 9, which obviously just before. Um, it's talking about Solomon has just built the temple to God, the first temple in Jerusalem. And by all accounts here, it is magnificent. And it says in chapter 9, Starting verse 15, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Sorry. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Giza, killing the Canaanite population and burning it down. He gave the city to his daughter as a wedding gift when she married Solomon. So Solomon rebuilt the city of Giza. He also built up the towns of Lower Beth Horon, 
Baalath and Tamar. In the wilderness within towns where his chariots and horses could be stationed, he built everything he desired in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout his entire realm. He goes on to say that there were still people living in the land who were Jebusites, including Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites. These were descendants of the nations whom the people of Israel had not completely destroyed. So Solomon conscripted them to his labor force. And they serve in the labor force to this day. Solomon moved his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, from the city of David to the new palace he had built for her and, and constructed the supporting terraces. He also built a fleet of ships at a port near Elath in the land of Edom along the shore of the Red Sea. And they sent experienced crews of sailors to sail the ships with Solomon's men and they sailed to Ophir and brought back to Solomon 16 tons of gold. Wow. We'll come back to that. Later on in chapter 10, it says each year Solomon received 25 tons of gold. That didn't include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. He made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. He made 300 small shields. And then he made a huge throne and decorated it with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. We'll jump on. The drinking cups were solid gold. All the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon, they were not made of silver because silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. He had a fleet of trading ships that sailed all over the place. He built up a huge force of chariots and horses, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, and he stationed them in the chariot cities. Cities just for the chariots. Think about that. And some near in Jerusalem. He made silver in plenty, as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, all of them. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts on their gods. And yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and in fact they did turn his heart away from the Lord. That's exhausting thinking about it, isn't it? But 700 wives and 300 concubines and all these chariots. What's really interesting about this is this is right in the, right in the middle of this story is this passage where it's talking about how wise and amazing all the praise he's receiving from the Queen of Sheba. But we see him making some really bad choices. And we'll see quite how bad if we turn to Deuteronomy 17. Now in, De in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the law. This is written just as, or this is writing about the time, just as they're about to enter the promised land. 
And God is giving them all sorts of instructions of how he wants them to behave, what he wants them to do, how to live in this land, how to reflect him to the whole world around him. And there's this little passage, starting in verse 14, entitled, Guidelines for a King. And it says this, You are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. And when you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king, the man the Lord your God chooses, because you must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Firstly, God's going, look, when you get there, you might think, oh, we should have a king. There's nothing here that says it's a good idea. But, look, you're probably, this is probably what you're going to resort to because you see it happening all around you. And you think, why don't we have a king? So here's some rules for that king. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. Certainly not a city, I would imagine. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. That's awkward. For the Lord has told you you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests and he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of the instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So let's just recap. The wisest king in history wisest man in history has his own section of the law. He has his own little passage of the law that doesn't give lots of instructions. It's not very long, but it does say two or three quite important things. Don't get yourself lots of wives because even you don't need to be the wisest man in the world to know that you're going to have problems if you have lots of wives. I think we can all figure that out. <laughs> don't have lots of wives because they'll turn your heart away. Don't, don't have huge stables of horses. And don't trade with Egypt because I saved you from Egypt. That's what I brought you from. Don't become the very thing I saved you from. The problem is what we see is that's exactly what Israel does and exactly what Solomon does. He has cities for his chariots and his horses, whole cities. He has cities to store his wealth in. Their only purpose is to store, which is... Really concerning, isn't it? Because if you remember, a while ago now, I talked about the beginning of Exodus and when they're slaves in Egypt, they are building 
store cities. The very thing they were doing as slaves, they're now getting slaves to build for them. They've become the very thing they were saved from. They've become the very thing they opposed. The oppressed have become the oppressor. And what's even more alarming is they build a temple to worship the God who saved them from slavery. And they build it using slaves. A temple to the God who saved them from slavery and they use slaves to build it. Because it's quite possible to celebrate our salvation and to entirely miss the point of what we've been saved from. It's quite possible to declare ourselves as Christians and to behave in very anti-kingdom, non-Christian ways. Even in our worship, we can become the thing that we oppose. We can become the thing that we're saved from. We can become the thing we've left behind. Because you see, power is seductive. And we see in our political system at the moment just a cycle of people in power and then people trying to overthrow, not just in our country, look around the world. And we become very much like the thing that we oppose. And, we, and it's, it's not just about political power. It's about what's going on in society. There's this great move towards tolerance. And you might have a range of views on that. Some of you might think that's a great thing. Some of you might have other thoughts around that. But there's this great move towards tolerance, except what's really interesting is this move towards tolerance seems to include a profound intolerance for people who are intolerant. Do we become the very thing that we oppose? Because that's what power does. It just creates, perpetuates this cycle. And power, t power is a, it's a dangerous thing, and it's a very interesting thing. When we read scripture, the narrative of power is throughout. It starts really early on in Genesis. At the fall, everything starts in Genesis, and at the fall we see this um, story, Adam and Eve, and eating the apple, and all these things come into their relationship. Their relationship with God is broken, their relationship with each other is damaged, their identity is damaged, their relationship with creation is damaged. It's all damaged. And one of the things that God says to Eve is, because you've done this, now he will rule over you. Your desire will be for him. said this before, but that is not a blueprint for how God wants the world to work. I've heard that scripture used to justify, well, that's why men are in charge, because God said, look, no, this is, God is not going, oh, yeah, the whole first thing didn't work out, so let's try, let's try putting man in charge, and let's see how that plays out, because it doesn't. Well, I think history tells us that. But I think that 
what's going on there is God is saying, your relationships now are going to be about power and control and desire and manipulation. It's not what they're supposed to be like. What we actually see in the chapter before is this, nothing was hidden and they were entirely one together. They were entirely connected together and yet we allow power to come into the relationships of our dynamics and not just in our politics in how we interact with each other and not just how we interact with our friends or in our workplace where there's power all over the place right but in our marriages you know we might talk a lot about what's acceptable inside a marriage or outside outside of marriage and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do outside of marriage and all this sort of stuff and this is right and this is wrong and whatever but actually we don't often talk we don't often talk about what a healthy, healthy sexual relationship looks like within a marriage. What a healthy relationship looks like within a marriage. Because it's very easy to bring power dynamics into our marriages. To make power plays. To manipulate, to control, to demand. To, imp to impose quite possible, you know, we can't, it's not this binary like, oh, all sex outside marriage is bad and all sex inside marriage is good. No, it's not that simple. Quite possible for me to bring a power dynamic into our relationship within my marriage, which is unhealthy, which is destructive. And we should probably talk about that stuff more, so maybe we will. You know, power dynamics get into everything. How we speak to each other, how we view each other. But power, power is a, power is a, it's a really dangerous thing because it disconnects us. Because it creates imbalance in our relationship. I'm the dominant one and you're the weaker one. Or you're the dominant one and I'm the weaker one. Even me stood on a stage here puts me, creates a power dynamic. And it's one we have to be really careful of. Just because I'm stood here doesn't mean I'm right. You have to think for yourself. You have to wrestle this stuff. We have to work this out. And it's better that we do this stuff in relationship. Just because I lead the church doesn't mean... I have all wisdom and everything I say is the right thing and should be done. Like we work this out together. That's why we have a team of leaders and that's why as a team of leaders we're connected with the church because every voice matters. Sometimes we want someone to be in charge. We've talked about this dynamic before. We want someone to tell us what God says because I don't actually want to encounter God for myself because that's a bit uncomfortable. So Tell me what God says. But Jesus actually challenges that. In Matthew 23, I think it is, he's talking um, just before he kind of does like the seven woes. And he actually talks a little bit about how we use power in our language. But just before that, he's kind of saying, look. He says, okay, the Pharisees are teaching you the law. They're teaching, and the, the law is good stuff. Like the Bible, there's good stuff in the Bible, and they're teaching that. So listen to what they're saying, but do not do what they're doing because they've got this power dynamic. And don't allow them to 
to put themselves in authority over you. And don't you put them in authority over you. Don't call people father when you have one heavenly father. Jesus is saying this. This isn't a passage that you hear many church leaders preach on. I'm not quite sure why. I can't, I've not been able to figure that out. But saying don't, don't just kind of sit there going, oh, you're my leader. You're, I'm going to do whatever you say. Like We have to work this stuff out together in relationship. But power damages and distorts relationship. It disconnects. It puts walls up. It corrupts. It distorts. It controls. It oppresses. It suppresses people. Power dominates. Power dehumanizes. And it disempowers others. At its worst, it is possible to exercise power well. But it's very difficult. But we, as children of God, are called to live a power that is exercised well. We, as followers of Christ, are called to follow a model that isn't about power overthrowing power. Jesus could have overthrown the Roman Empire if he wanted to. He had lots of opportunities. And not just, not just, but he definitely had the divine opportunities where he could call down a horde of angels and he could, and he could call down fire and brimstone from heaven and he, could, and he could dominate and he could destroy. He could have done that. But he also had opportunities when the crowd were right with him saying, come on, this is the Messiah, we can do this. And Jesus pulled back and said, no, 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 we're not doing that. There's this point in Luke 9, it talks about, they've just had, actually, let's read it. Let's, no, let's find it and read it. In Luke 9, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with, if you've got your phones and your Bible app, flick to it. Um, but in Luke 9, in verse 28, it talks about the transfiguration. So Jesus has just been up on the mountain with a couple of his disciples, and he's had this transfiguration experience where Elijah and Moses have appeared with him in this incredible experience. And they're kind of going, oh my goodness, this is it. Let's build some shelters. Let's build some shrines. Let's, like, oh my goodness, this is, this, no one can argue now. Like, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is it. This is, it's going to come. Like, he's going to restore Israel. He's going to overthrow our oppressors. He's going to destroy the Roman Empire. This is it. Israel is back. And Jesus comes out from there. And the next day, he's coming down the mountain, and the crowds are there, and he casts out this demon from this boy. But the disciples can't do it. And Jesus is going, oh, what is wrong with you? Okay, I'll do it. And then he starts saying some weird stuff about going, well, I'm going to have to die. And the disciples are going, no, 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 I don't, they just, it says like they just did not get it. Because in their heads, you see, what's going on is, this is the moment he's about to overthrow the enemy. He's about to restore Israel's glory. This is the Messiah. And they, everyone knows what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. He's going to come in power and destroy and overthrow and restore this is going to be dramatic. And they are in on it. 
So the next thing we see in verse 46 is the disciples arguing. Okay, who's going to get the best positions? Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? Who's going to get what positions in his cabinet when he forms his new government of Israel? Because we are in on this. We, we nailed our colors to the right mast. We signed up to the right guy. This guy just appeared with Moses and Elijah. This guy, we just heard God's voice. Like, this guy is it. And we are on the inside. Who? Which of us is going to get the best position? Because in their head, this is all about power. And Jesus says, uh, anyone who welcomes a little child on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. And the disciples didn't really get it. Because they're going... That doesn't sound like any kingdom we've seen before. That doesn't, like, come on. Like, we're on the right side of history here. We're on the right side. We're right. Everyone else is wrong. And that manifests itself again because then they said, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. But we told him to stop because he's not in our group. Wow. Here's a guy doing miracles using Jesus' name, and the disciples are going, uh, excuse me, you're not in our little exclusive group. You're not allowed to do that. And then they go and tell the teacher, oh, Jesus, Jesus, you never guess what we just did. We just heard this guy, and he's not one of us, and he's doing these things, and we know he's not allowed to do that, don't we? So we told him he's not allowed to do it because he's not one of us. Oh, they were annoying, weren't they? My goodness me. I think we're like this too a lot of the time. And Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who's not against you is for you. And they're kind of going, oh, come. this is just weird. And then we get to this brilliant bit. And it says in verse 51, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messages ahead to a Samaritan village. We do not like the Samaritans, okay? They were the enemy. They were the, they were the others. They were the half Casts, half bloods, half like they were the half and half, half Roman, half Jewish, like they were the not as good as, they were the outsiders, the outcasts, they believed different stuff, they thought Jesus was going to arrive in a different place. We hate the Samaritans, okay? So that's just the subtext there. And he sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Because the people of Samaria hated the people from Jerusalem. And when Jesus and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Ah, oh, boss, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? What? These people aren't listening to you, Jesus. They're not even welcoming you. They're not welcoming us. Should we just destroy them now? Now, you might go, well, that's ridiculous. But let's be careful here. Because they could have said, well, you know, it's biblical. I mean, it's only a biblical position, right? Because in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't welcome. And God called down fire and brimstone on them and destroyed them. So it's just a biblical point, right? When somebody says, 
oh, it's in the Bible, be really careful. Because the Bible says a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the Bible. It's a little sidetrack, but I sometimes get a little bit confused when people go, oh, you know, biblical model of marriage. I'm going, 700 wives? What is that our biblical model of marriage that we which which biblical model of marriage are we going with? <laughs> like there's a lot. Like and there's there's a lot of stuff we go, oh it's biblical, right? But there's a lot of stuff that is not good that happens in the Bible. So we just have to be a little bit careful. Anyway, the disciples go, Oh, you remember that whole biblical thing? Because we're biblical people. Should we call down fire and destroy them? And Jesus says, You do not know what spirit you are of. Shut down. Biblically, they might be right. But they've missed the point. You see, they're still playing the power game. They're still playing, we're right, they're wrong. God loves us, God's going to destroy them. God's going to include us. God's going to exclude them. God says, we're right and they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. That's the power dynamic. And if Jesus had just come back and overthrown the Roman Empire, all he would have done is perpetuate the power dynamic. Just one oppressed group overthrowing the oppressor. But we know that what would happen then is very quickly that oppressed would become the oppressor. And we just perpetuate the cycle. So what Jesus does, what Jesus does is says, no, no, this kingdom is different. You do not know what spirit you are of. In this kingdom, we confront power with love. In this kingdom, we confront power with weakness, with sacrifice. This kingdom's different. So straight after this, he repeats again, I'm going to have to die to see this through. And the disciples do not get it. Because we are indoctrinated with this power narrative. From Genesis 3, relationships are about power. But love, love connects where power disconnects. Love corrects where power corrupts. Love inspires where power controls. Love liberates where power oppresses. Love encourages us where power suppresses us. Love prefers the other where power dominates. Love empowers us where power disempowers. See, love puts up walls and love breaks them down. Sorry, power puts up walls. 
and love breaks them down. Because power puts us in this unequal position in our relationship. And we see power plays all around us, all the time. We see them in business, but we see them in conversation. And we do them in the church as well. As a child, do you remember, like we would, Jesus talks about swearing oaths in Matthew 5. He kind of does this whole thing. He's going, look, don't swear oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear on this or swear on that. or make Like, don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what he's getting at there is power dynamics. Because if I say to you, oh, no, 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 I swear. Like, as a kid, you'd go, oh, I swear on my mother's life. Or cross my heart and hope to die. Anyone say that when you're a kid? Cross my heart, hope to die. It's like this sort of oath, this sort of promise that we do. Or I swear on my mother's life. Or I swear on whatever, whatever we swear on. That is kind of going, you cannot argue with this. I'm shutting it down. The final word on this. I'm right. Conversation over. It's a power play. It's a, it's a dominant... You know when you hear politicians say, it's very clear, and you're going, no, it's not. <laughs> and the fact you're saying it's very clear means you know it's not. <laughs> it's a power play. It's a power play on words. Like we're using words to dominate a situation, to dominate a person, to shut down the conversation because power shuts down. But we do it in the church too, right? The Bible says, can't argue. The Bible says it. Can't argue with it. Sometimes we use that as a, as a power play. Shut down the conversation. In my years as youth leader and then leader of the team, number of times I've had people coming to me saying, God says I need to do this. And I'm like, well, I'm out then, aren't I? This isn't a conversation. This is just an information <laughs> moment. Like, you're just telling me something. And you don't want a conversation. If your opening line is, God's told me, boom, I have to go and do this. Now, interestingly, what's actually going on there a lot of the time is they're doing something or deciding, making a decision or wanting to do something that they know that I probably don't, might not support or agree with. But if I say, God's told me, conversation over. Because I can't. I can't overrule God, can I? Like, we're playing our trump card. We're playing our ace card. We're like, we're dominating the situation. We're, bang, God says, conversation done. It's we do it in the church too. Our words matter. Our words have power. But let them stand or fall on the authority they carry. Let them stand or fall on the love they carry. Are our words soaked in love and grace? Or are we trying to use power? Are we trying to dominate? Are we trying to shut down? Our words matter. 
there's a great couple of quotes that I'd love to share with you. One is from a guy called Simon Sonek, who says, we cannot control a relationship. We can only contribute to a relationship. I think he's wrong. I think we often try and control relationships. We should not, is I think a better quote. We should not control the relationship. We should only contribute to a relationship. All relationships, business or personal, are an opportunity to serve another human being. All relationships are an opportunity to serve another human being. And yet so often, we try and use them to dominate, to get what we want out of it, to use. But that's not effective relationship. That's a power dynamic. Maya Angelou says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Our words matter, but it's important that our words are soaked in love. Our words are not devoid of us. And I think sometimes, particularly when it comes to things, issues like faith and religion, we talk about absolute truths. Well, so the Bible says, and this is just it. God says, so this is just it. This is how it is. That's very clear. This is what we believe. This is it. But there's no empathy in that. There's no connection in that. There's no love in that. We're just communicators of an arbitrary truth. But our words should not be devoid of us. When we speak, it should not be just information we're communicating, but our very essence of being should be being communicated. The love with which we carry should be being communicated. Ursula Le Guin says, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art and very often in our art, the art of words. Our words matter, but let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let our words stand or fall by the love that is drenching them, by the love that is being expressed through them. Let's not become people who abuse power or who use power to dominate, to disconnect, to control. Let's be people who submit to a kingdom that is not like that. Let's understand what spirit we are of. Let us be people who love. Let's not be people who have benefited from grace and yet show no grace. Let's not become the very thing that we were freed from. Let's be people of the kingdom. Let's follow a Jesus who said the only way this can be done is by dying. The only way this can be done is by sacrifice. The only way this can be done is through unconditional love. Aaron, do you wanna come up? And what we're gonna do as Aaron leads worship is we're gonna take communion but it's just here, so it doesn't have to be right now. It can be any time in the next 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever. It's right here. 
when you come to take communion this morning, what are the... Th- what are the positions of power that you need to lay down? Where are the relationships where you've put up walls of power or where you've acted expressing power and not enough love? What are the things we need to submit to, surrender to? Where have we not acted in the right spirit? As we take communion this morning, May it be a moment of recommitment to a kingdom that is not about power and domination and overthrowing and might, but to a kingdom that is about love and grace and surrender and sacrifice. May our words be words that bring life and not death. May our words be words that bring hope and not despair. May our words be words that bring grace and not judgment. Amen? Amen. So as we, as we sing, take communion together. Pray for one another. Speak blessing over each other. Serve one another because every relationship is an opportunity to serve another human being. So let's do that together around the table. Amen.